We're going to open our Bibles together to Colossians chapter 1. Prayer is a vital force behind any ministry. Prayer is not a device for getting our wills done through heaven, but a desire that heaven's will might be done through us. Work for God that is not energized by prayer to God will only be, ultimately, the work of man. Prayer is the vital force, then, behind any ministry that is the work of God. I thank the Lord for those who pray for this ministry. I know that many of you do in your own quiet time. There are those who meet on Sundays to pray for this ministry. At 7.30 downstairs in room 7, there are those who gather for prayer for Sunday mornings. At 8.45 downstairs again in room 1, there are those who gather for prayer for our service. At 9.15 during this hour, there are those who are praying for this day's ministry over in our church office. I thank God for those who are praying for our ministry. All of us will be called upon to be involved in prayer in a deeper way this fall as we get into the Foundation for the Future Phase 1 campaign. We'll be involved in a number of ways, but one particular way uh, will be a challenge to all of us, and that is a 24-hour prayer vigil when we'll have the opportunity to sign up to be a part of a group praying around the clock for that particular emphasis in our church. That ministry, like any other ministry, must be energized by the faithful and fervent prayer of God's people. The Apostle Paul taught churches to pray, and God's people prayed. In fact, it's not possible to think of a New Testament congregation, really, apart from prayer. Every letter that Paul wrote, except perhaps two of them, dealt with prayer, or in them he actually prayed. The text that we have before us today in Colossians is an introduction to the whole epistle, but in that introduction there is a recounting of Paul's personal prayer life. When was the last time you wrote a letter to someone and described to them your prayer life? How you were praying for them? What you were saying before God you wanted him to do in their lives? That's what Paul does as he begins the letter. He introduces himself in a more or less customary way. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is, one who has been commissioned and sent by Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was not an apostle. Timothy was a brother. He was a fellow worker of the apostle Paul. He was not himself an apostle. But he joined with Paul in writing this letter to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. 
Paul describes these brothers as saints. The idea in the word saints is that they were dedicated. They had been set apart for God's divine use, his purpose in the world. It is wonderful when we understand that that's what our life is about. That God has set us apart, that we are saints, that we are dedicated to him. And because he has dedicated us, we are to dedicate ourselves to his work. And he calls them, secondly, faithful. Faithful, loyal Christians in the city of Colossae. There are many today who call themselves Christians who are not faithful and who are not loyal to Jesus Christ. But these were in contrast to the 20th century Christians because they were loyal, it says. Loyal brethren in Christ. There we have that phrase that Paul uses many times and other writers as well, but especially Paul. At least 160 times in the New Testament we come across this phrase, in Christ or in Jesus Christ, something like that, describing our position in Christ. He describes them not only as in Christ, but also in Colossae, which is the city where they live. Paul had never visited Colossae. It was some distance to the east of Ephesus, where he spent a good deal of time. It is conjectured that uh, during the time Paul was in Ephesus, or shortly thereafter, a missionary team headed by Epaphras, of whom we read in this paragraph, was sent to the city of Colossae, and not only there, but to Hierapolis as well, another nearby town. And they are the ones, not Paul, who preached in Colossae. Paul had never been there. He had never seen these people face to face. And yet he is concerned for them. He addresses them. He knows them through Epaphras. And then he greets them again in a customary way when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace was a customary way in which Gentile people addressed themselves, greeted one another in that day. Of course, Paul brings a whole meaning to it in the idea of grace. It literally means favor, and he is saying God's favor be upon you. And when he says peace, he is reminding them of the Hebrew greeting, which was shalom, still is, which means peace. It's not just the absence of conflict, but shalom refers to bounty, to abundance, to prosperity. And so Paul is writing to this church, which is composed of Gentile and Jew, and he is greeting them in a customary way, to the Gentiles' grace, to the Jews' peace, from God our Father. God is the Father of all believers, whether Jew or Gentile or whatever ethnic background they may be from or what social class. He is God our Father. He does not belong to a single group. He is the Father of all of those who are in Christ because they have trusted in Christ, believed on Him for the salvation of their souls. He goes on to say, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphus, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now we're going to stop reading at that point for this morning. We'll continue the introduction next week. But you can begin to get a flavor of the Apostle Paul's words as he writes about prayer and actually in a few lines will pray for them. What we have here is Paul's disclosure of his prayer life, and he talks about what I'm calling, for my purposes, his prayer circle. We talk about being in prayer circles. Well, Paul here talks about his prayer circle. Notice he says, we give thanks to God. And so he is including not only himself in his prayer circle, but Timothy, certainly, who also addresses this epistle to them. But if you go to chapter 4, which we'll not do this morning, you'll find that there are at least eight others who are named, who are with Paul at the present time when he writes this letter. So there were eight, nine, ten people in Paul's prayer circle who prayed for the Colossians. Remember that as Paul writes this letter, he is writing from prison. This is during his first imprisonment in Rome. He is not in a dungeon he is under house arrest, waiting there for a trial before Caesar. That's where the book of Acts leaves off the record. And we have after that only tradition to understand what may have happened to Paul. We believe that Paul was at some point released from his house arrest, <clears throat> perhaps had a hearing before Caesar, perhaps was released without the hearing being necessary, that he continued his journeys as an apostle and as a missionary for several years, perhaps going as far as Spain, some would even say into other parts of Europe that are unnamed in the scriptures. And then Paul was imprisoned a second time. The second time he was imprisoned, he was put into the Mamertine prison, which was a hole in the ground, literally. It was a filthy, stinky, dark, damp prison. And it was there that he wrote his last letter, which was Second Timothy, as we count them, Second Timothy. And he was then, at some point, shortly thereafter, beheaded, according to tradition. So Paul is writing here several years before his life. He is incarcerated at this point under house arrest. These others are able to come and go freely, and they are part of his prayer circle. Now, I call it a prayer circle not only because of who was in it, but because of what they prayed for. The language that Paul uses here seems to come full circle. You notice he begins by addressing them as saints. 
a word that he uses again in verse 4, this word again, meaning that they were people dedicated to Christ. They were saints, set apart to the Lord. But then in verse 12, as he brings his prayerful thoughts to a close, he again addresses them as saints. And so he comes full circle in this idea of being dedicated to Christ. In verse 6, you notice the phrase, bearing fruit and increasing. That's going to be the heart of what I want to talk about this morning. But again, he uses that same phrase in verse 10 as he begins to wind down. And there he is praying for them to please the Lord in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so you see the language again folds upon itself. In verse 3, he gives thanks to God, the Father. In verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father. And so once again, we see the language coming full circle. And then he uses the word understood in verse 6. A word that refers to having a deep, personal knowledge. A knowledge that is more than intellectual. It participates in what it knows. It gets a handle on what it knows. And that special Greek word is used again in verse 9, where he talks about that you may be filled with this personal, experiential knowledge of God. And so the language in this prayer just keeps coming full circle. It folds upon itself time and time again. It's a prayer circle. It is a prayer circle that really embraces three ideas. One, giving thanks to God. Two, knowing God, knowing God fully. And third, experiencing God. Experiencing God's power in one's life. That's what Paul is praying about with his friends on behalf of the Colossians. <clears throat> now, we want to talk to this morning about the fact that Paul's prayer is permeated with thanksgiving. Now, why is that? Why does Paul begin with thanksgiving and end with thanksgiving in his prayer? In fact, it is a theme that runs through this epistle. We've pointed out two places in chapter 1. Look in chapter 3 and verse 15. He concludes this exhortation by saying, and be thankful. Again in verse 16, he says, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Why is Paul emphasizing thanksgiving? It is because Paul was willing to acknowledge something that many of us have forgotten. And that is that he acknowledged he was not self-sufficient. That sounds very un-American because Americans are supposed to be very sufficient. We learn from the beginning of our lives that to be a, a real American, to be a real person, is to accomplish the American dream, to be a self-sufficient person, not to have to depend upon anybody. And a lot of us have bought into that. 
Now, if you make it yourself, you don't have to be thankful to anybody else. You can thank yourself. If you've accomplished what you have because of yourself, then you can praise self, not praise God. But you see, Paul, a man of great accomplishment, recognized that all of his accomplishments were not of himself. In fact, those things that he had accomplished in himself, he said, I count the manure. Dung. They're nothing. Paul recognized that the most important things in life are those that God accomplishes in us and through us. And that we are, in fact, a dependent people. We are dependent upon God. And the sooner we write that in our hearts, the happier our lives will be and the more fruitful they'll be. That's why Paul is grateful. Because he recognizes he didn't do it. He's dependent upon God, and so over and over again he is thankful. There's no giving that is more important than thanks giving. We need to be careful to give God thanks. We are the objects of his grace. He therefore needs to be the object of our thanks. Someone has said thanksgiving is the memory of the heart. Thanksgiving is the memory of the heart. God forbid that we should suffer from Alzheimer's of the soul and forget God and forget His goodness. For Thanksgiving is the memory of the heart as we remember what God has done. Now, Paul in this paragraph gives thanks to God for what the gospel had accomplished. Now remember, Paul had never been there, so he can't give thanks to himself. And he certainly mentions Epaphras and gives him honor, but he doesn't even thank Epaphras for it. He gives thanks to God for what the gospel had done. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, whether they be in Colossae or Roseville. It is the gospel that does the work. Now, he sums up the work of the gospel in that phrase that I pointed out earlier in verse 6, that it bears fruit and increases. Now, in pointing out the work of the gospel this way, the apostle is telling us that there is an inward work of the gospel and there is an outward work of the gospel. The inward work of the gospel is the propagation of fruit. It has transformed lives. We'll talk about that. That's the inward work. The outward work of the gospel, for which Paul gives thanks, is the progression of the truth and how it advances. It's like dropping a stone in water and watching the ripple effect. He says the gospel progresses. It goes out. It advances. And he thanks God for that. Let's talk for a moment about the inward work of the gospel, the propagation of fruit. Paul is here picturing a tree, a fruit tree, that bears fruit. It reproduces itself through the seed that it produces. He says that the gospel is like a tree that bears fruit and that that fruit is the changed lives of those who believe it. 
the fruit of transformation in the life is the evidence of the genuineness of the work of the gospel in a person's life. Now what did that change look like? Why was Paul so excited about the Colossians? It was because of what that change looked like as he viewed it, what the gospel had done in them internally. And he brings our attention to three words that he often used. The triad of Christian graces as he talks about faith, love, and hope. Verses 4 and 5. You may want to underline those words. They're key words to Paul's theology, to what Paul was looking for. He thanks God that there was faith, love, and hope in these people because to him that meant that the gospel had really done its work. There hadn't been a short circuit. There hadn't been an early frost. The fruit had been fully born. Now I want to talk about them in the order that Paul seems to use them logically. He seems in this context to point to hope as being the core of it. Hope is the forward-looking fruit. Hope is that which anticipates. Hope is the assurance. It is the confidence of what God is going to do in the future. Hope is subjective in the sense that we have hope. And our hope may be strong or it may be weak, but we have an anticipation of the future. But hope is also objective in the sense of what it is that we're hoping for. What that thing is that we're looking forward to. And Paul really is emphasizing the latter here. He sees this hope as being laid up for them in heaven. That is, it is stored, it is kept in reserve in heaven for you. What is the hope that he's talking about? Well, I think we find out in verse 27 of the same chapter, where he says, To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now he's going to define that mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Of glory. The hope of glory. I think this is confirmed by what he says in chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4 where he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So what is he saying that they're looking forward to? It is the glory that they will have when Christ comes. It is that which will consummate their salvation. They're being like Christ and being with Christ. That's the hope that he has in mind. Now, the heretics of Colossae offered no hope. I've not mentioned the heresy yet, but the reason, one of the reasons that Paul wrote this book is because there were heretics in Colossae, false teachers. He doesn't really define that false teaching for us, but because he writes about it, we have an idea of what it was like. 
And uh, we're going to be studying that in the weeks ahead. But whatever it was they were teaching, these people were offering no hope. Paul said, you have in the gospel a hope. So don't listen to those who are not offering hope. They offer only speculation. Nor did these people have hope from their background, their paganism, for those who were Gentiles. It offered no hope. But the gospel did offer hope. Hope was born in their hearts because of the gospel. And I want to present to you this morning this fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message of hope that there is in the world. It's the only message by which people can have some confidence about the future. Everything else is speculation. But the gospel is an assurance. It's, it's a confidence of what's going to come in this world. Stephen Curtis Chapman has a, a CD on which there is a song entitled Heaven in the Real World. Maybe some of you have heard it. And uh, before the song begins, he has a recording of Billy Graham, who basically is asking the question, where is the hope? Our hope isn't in this world. It isn't in who's controlling the White House. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And then the song begins, and the words go something like this. I saw it again today in the face of a little child, looking through eyes of fear and uncertainty. It echoed in a cry for freedom across the streets and across the miles, cries from the heart to find the missing part. Where is the hope? Where is the peace? that will make this life complete for every man, woman, boy, and girl looking for heaven in the real world. And then Chapman writes, to stand in the pouring rain and believe the sun will shine again, to know that the grave is not the end, to feel the embrace of grace, and cross the line where real life begins and know in your heart you've found the missing part. He is the hope. He is the peace that will make this life complete for every man, woman, boy, and girl. Jesus is heaven in the real world. It is the gospel of Jesus, the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, and of his coming again to correct the wrong, to judge the evil, to establish righteousness, to reward those who are faithful. That is our hope. And out of that hope, says the apostle, there springs faith and love. If hope is the forward-looking fruit, faith is the upward-looking fruit because it directs the heart toward God in trust and reliance. The pagans in Colossae trusted their fickle gods. The Jews trusted their own self-righteousness in rule-keeping. But the Christians believed a gospel that pointed them toward the one true God, the God of heaven and earth, 
the God who he's going to describe here in just a few verses. Out of this hope that the gospel gave to them, there was faith and reliance on God. And with that upward-looking fruit, there was an outward-looking fruit, love, that caused them to see others with different eyes. Before they were Christians, they saw others as something to be used or despised. Certainly nothing to care about. But now, as believers, there is love in their life. And out of that love, there is concern for the welfare of others. They are willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary for the good of others. A new ethic was born. And it was quite in contrast to the former. This love is said to be to all the saints. It certainly was also to Paul and to his team, and for that Paul gave thanks to God. And so he thanks God for the work of the gospel in them, the internal, inward work. It is the fruit that he saw of hope. Their lives look forward to something. There was faith in God. There was loyalty in their lives because they believed God. And there was love. There was concern for others. The arrows of their lives didn't all point inward. They pointed outward. Thank God for the inward work of the gospel that is being propagated in your life. The fruit that is there. Because Jesus Christ has made a difference. And wherever he goes, he makes a difference. And Paul gives thanks, secondly, for the outward work of the gospel. Because he says not only was the gospel bearing fruit, but he says it's increasing. Here we see the idea of its progression, the progression of the truth of the gospel. He calls the gospel in verse 5 the word of truth. Now these dear people, like by far the majority of people who are alive today in the earth had believed a lie. They were worshiping false gods, thinking they could get to God through their self-righteousness or what they did, their works. But the word of truth came to them. And they realized the emptiness of that sort of faith that depends upon self and one's own works to be made right with God. He calls it also in verse 6, the grace of God in truth. In other words, they had recognized that God's true grace gives eternal life. That the gospel is the message of God's free gift to man through what Christ did at the cross. That's not something we work for. It's something God gives to us. And all we have to do is receive it as an act of faith. Now this gospel had progressed. And Paul reminds them here of the route that the gospel had taken in getting to them. He reminds them of how they had learned it. See that word down in verse 7? It was from Epaphras. The word learned here is the verb form of the noun disciple. So Paul says, let me remind you how you became learners 
disciples of this gospel of truth. Let me remind you of the route that it took. He reminds them, first of all, that the gospel comes to the unregenerate. Do you notice that in verse 6? The gospel which has come to you. It had come through Epaphras, who, by the way, is now imprisoned with Paul, it seems, according to Philemon, another letter he wrote at this time. But the gospel had come to them through Epaphras. Notice the way he describes this sterling man, about whom we know very, very little. He says he is a fellow bond servant. That is, Epaphras saw himself as one who was a slave of Jesus Christ. That's all. To him, life wasn't about doing your own thing. Life was about being a slave to the will of God, to what Jesus wanted in his life. And as far as Epaphras was concerned, that was the only thing that counted. What does Jesus want me to do? And the second way he describes him is as a faithful servant of Christ. The word servant is our word deacon. Doesn't mean he was literally a deacon as we think of that term necessarily, but it means that he saw himself again as a servant, <clears throat> as one who was there to help others, and faithful in doing that. Dear God, what we need today is faithfulness in the church of Jesus Christ. It has gone out the window. People will only serve if it's convenient for them. They only want to serve if it's good for them. God help us. We are so far from the spirit of this man who brought the gospel to the city of Colossae. So far from that spirit that says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, and I will be loyal and faithful to him. Now, let me ask you a question. If the work of the gospel involves advancement and where it's going, where is it going through you? Through Epaphras, it went a hundred miles over to the city of Colossae. And then eventually on to the city of Hierapolis. Where's it going through you? You see, the route of the gospel begins by it coming somewhere. To that, that office, to that building where you are, to that classroom, to that neighborhood. The gospel has to come there. That's the first step in the route. Then he describes the gospel not only coming to them, but the fact that they heard it at there at the end of verse 6. So the second part of the route is that the gospel has to be heard. And, of course, that implies some proclamation of it. The ear and the mind have to grasp what the gospel is. You know, there are a lot of people in our world today that have not a clue what the gospel is. They think they know but they don't understand what the gospel really is. They've never heard it. And it may be because they have never had it come to them. It has to come first into their sphere, into their life realm. And then when someone proclaims it, they can hear it. But that's not conversion. Conversion is the third step where the gospel is understood. Notice he says you heard it and you understood it. So the route of the gospel 
is that first of all it comes through the life of someone and then it is heard as that message is shared and then by God's grace there will be those who will understand it, who will know it in the deepest sense. Now it requires God's intervention for that to happen. Turn back to Ephesians for just a moment. Let me remind you of the condition of the natural human heart. Chapter 4. By the way, Ephesians is a twin epistle of Colossians. The two of them share a lot of commonality. Verse 17, Ephesians 4, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. That is the unsaved, the pagans. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Notice how Paul just piles up these words showing how desperately wicked is the natural human heart. How impossible it is for someone to really understand what he hears, unless the Spirit of God drives it home, unless God opens the understanding so that there can be faith. If our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are lost, and whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine to them. So it's, it's not only the hardness of the human heart, it is satanic blindness that we're dealing with. But Paul thanks God. Because, you see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So it will progress, even though there are many obstacles, even though the human heart is hardened. The gospel will proceed, it will advance, and it will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. Paul writes with gratitude for the work of the gospel, inside and outside. Inside, it was changing their lives. There was the fruit of hope and faith and love. And on the outside, the gospel was progressing. It was advancing What's the gospel doing in your life? How is the gospel bringing about change in your outlook, in your uplook, in your forward look? What's the gospel doing outside? How is it progressing through you? You know, if it's going to progress through us, we have to be people like Epaphras. Epaphras was with Paul. He's part of the prayer circle. And so if the gospel is going to progress through us, first of all, we have to be people of prayer. We have have to be people who know what it is to pray. Secondly, like Epaphras, we have to have an attitude of service. And say, Lord, I'm yours. You have redeemed me. You have purchased me with your own blood. I am your servant. I am your slave. You tell me what you want me to do. And third, we have to be faithful to our calling. We have to be loyal. We have to be there. What is faithfulness? We've even lost sight of the definition of that word. 
Faithfulness is not doing something occasionally. Faithfulness is not doing something when you feel like it. Faithfulness is doing it. It's making a commitment and sticking with it. Thank God Jesus is not our faithful high priest just when he feels like it. Thank God he's not our faithful high priest every other week. Thank God he's not our high priest who's faithful a year at a time. But he is our high priest, faithful in service, and he is there constantly on our behalf. And that's what faithfulness is. It means to understand what our service is for Jesus Christ and to stick with it. When it's easy, when it's tough, when it's fun, when it's work, we stick with it. Because it's the right thing to do. And when you and I become a people of prayer, when we have an attitude of service, when we are faithful to the work God's called us to do, then the gospel is going to progress through us where God wants it to go. John Knox was the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. Very near the end of his life, he was quite ill and said to his wife, Read me that scripture where I first cast my anchor. She read to him the 17th chapter of John. That seemed to revive him. He began to pray. He prayed for his fellow men. He prayed for the ungodly who had rejected the gospel in his preaching. He pleaded on behalf of people who had been recently converted. It was a dangerous time to be a real Christian, and so he prayed for God's protection upon those who were facing persecution. And while he was praying, he died. And his spirit went to be with the Lord. That's why the gospel advanced in Scotland. That's why Mary, the Queen of Scots, said, I fear his prayers more than I do the armies of my enemies. That's quite a statement. And that's what it takes to get the work done. We can thank God for the gospel, for what it's doing in us, and I trust what it's doing through us for the glory of God. Let's pray together. I'd like for us to sing that chorus again, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Perhaps we can get the words back up on the slide. Perhaps you know the words. But you know, that's what we are, a vessel, a sanctuary, a place for God to be doing his work in us and through us. So as we close this service, let's close with this spirit of prayer. Let it be with thanksgiving that God has even in grace called us out of our sin and wickedness, out of our hardness and ignorance. He's called us to the gospel. And out of thankful hearts, let's say to him, Lord, prepare me. When you've prepared me, Lord, use me. Father, I pray that you will use this 
closing chorus to seal in our hearts the work of your Spirit through your Word in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy tried and true with thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for Let's stand together please and sing it once more with bowed heads to the Lord Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a in our lives be the Lord of our lives we give ourselves to you as servants and we say to you that we will faithfully carry out our duties until that day that we see you face to face let that hope motivate the faith and the love in our lives this day In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.